Welcome back to the VML Voice. I'm your host, Rob Bullington. And thanks for joining us for part two of our episode of interviews recorded at the Broadband Together Conference from May of this year. If you skipped part one, that's okay. This isn't like one of those Star Wars spin-off series where it's easy to get lost unless you know the whole backstory. We like to keep things simple here at the VML Voice. So check out part one when you can, and in the meantime, get ready to hear conversations with Ilad Nafshi, Executive Vice President and Chief Network Officer of Comcast, Sejal Nayak, Deputy Chief Economist at the Virginia Association of Realtors, Matt Ogberg, Director of Virginia State and Local Affairs for Verizon, Cindy Church, E-Rate Coordinator for the Library of Virginia, and Crystal Duke, Grants and Funding Manager for BreezeLine. So, without further ado, let's turn back the clock and dive back into broadband together, together. My name is Elad Nafshi. I'm the, the Chief Network Officer for uh, Comcast, so I, I lead the network organization. Um, and I'm here for the day. I'm very excited to be here. Coming here today, given the audience that you have, what did you want them to to get out of what you were saying? What was yeah. the one message you wanted to impart? Yeah, so this is a very exciting time for Comcast. You know, we're in the process of completely transforming how we deliver uh, internet services to all of our customers. Uh, and through the, uh, the launch of what we call the 10G network, uh, the 10G network, which we're busy rolling out everywhere, uh, is going to enable our customers to receive multiple gigabit symmetrical services with unrivaled reliability that is powered and enabled by real-time visibility into anything that happens across the network, uh, offering the lowest latency, which is really important for any type of video connectivity or audio connectivity or gaming, uh, to all of our customers across the uh, across our network, not just the right side of the street or the better side of town, but truly across our entire network. So very, very exciting. That's fantastic. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of things during the pandemic got a light shone on them that wasn't there previously. Totally. And it's funny because at the end of the day, out of, you know, uh, when the night is darkest, right, you know, the sun is, you know, right around the corner. And, and I think that a lot of people um, have found new ways to communicate, new ways to collaborate, new ways to uh, uh, innovate like never before, constrained by the reality of the uh, the pandemic. And, and it was... Uh, it was very exciting to have the network enable all of that. It was a good time to be in, you know, internet communications. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. it, it depends on how you look at it. I could tell you that, you know, the first uh, couple months of the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of sleep. <laughs> it wasn't a very good place to <laughs> be, right? So I, w- I do want to ask you about one thing that you did, you covered in your presentation here today. And uh, you had a very fantastic slide. I have a picture you took yourself of a, of a fiber optic cable with a bullet hole through it. Could you tell me a little bit about that and and how you what 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 role that played in your presentation? Because I thought it was a really good part. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So be- so look, anyone could build a network. Anyone could build a fiber network. Okay, it's just connecting wires from your know, point A to point B. Running and maintaining a network, running and maintaining a network as large as the Comcast network, um, is uh, is not easy. And it's not easy because uh, when you have a fiber tear, for example. Uh, or any type of, you know, fiber impairment, uh, fiber disruption, et cetera, uh, you, you need to do three things. First of all, you need to find it. Okay. Then you need to make sure that you've determined and you're sure that it's a fiber issue, not one of 
hundred other things that could go right. wrong. Right. Um, and then you need to, uh, you know, make sure that you're able to dispatch the fiber restoration crews to the right location. Uh, and then obviously the fiber restorations need to have all the tools and they need to be trained and so on and so forth. And so something as trivial as, oh, it's just a cut fiber, uh, could, um, extend into hours and hours and hours of downtime to our customers. And so the challenge that we give our engineers is, well, how do we, how do we make that better? How do we make that better for our customers? Uh, and this is where Comcast Innovation, you know, truly shines. And, and the engineers build a, a new device, which is now rolled across our network, um, that enables us to detect any fiber impairment within 120 seconds and enables us to pinpoint exactly where on the map that impairment is and now automatically dispatch the right technicians with all the equipment and everything that they need to restore the fiber uh, and literally shave hours off of the outage time from a fiber impairment standpoint. And that is so exciting to see in action across our network right now. Um, and again, all powered by you know tremendous um, uh, engineers uh, at Comcast that I'm, I'm very proud to have the opportunity to uh, to lead. And I, I love that, and I love that you brought that up in your in your remarks today because there's so much talk about you know getting the broadband out there, getting the fiber out there, and how are we going to pay for it, and how are we going to get out there. And it's like you were sort of one step ahead and like, great, now you've got it. How are you going to maintain it? That's exactly right. You know, and That's great, exactly you've right. got really fast internet, but if it still takes 20 hours to fix. You're still sitting there with a blank screen. That's you know, exactly it's right. Kind of this or, next you know, step. How do you take advantage of bleeding edge artificial intelligence uh, in order to stay ahead and, and auto detect patterns of uh, an outage, auto detects where something could go wrong in the network, uh, and be able to fix it without the customers ever know about this, hmm. or be able to optimize uh, the internet delivery down to the individual customer basis and do it completely transparent uh, to the customer. And that's not science fiction. That's something that we're running on a on a nationwide scale right now uh, and we're so very proud of being able to do that of course then what if you get to the point where you can fix problems without the customers ever knowing about it if they didn't know there was a problem you fixed it how can you convince them how good you're doing you know you gotta at least like a little blip like oh you just had a problem but we fixed it you know what my goal is to make sure that uh the internet always works Mm -hmm. okay i'll take the credit when you'll never tell me as a consumer that hey i was down last week Mm-hmm. And if I can quote you from just a couple minutes ago, when the night is darkest, the sun is just around the corner. That's right. I really appreciate you being at Broadband Together. Thank you for, for speaking to our members and everyone else here. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Uh, so my name is Sejal Naik. I am the Deputy Chief Economist at the Virginia Association of Realtors. Uh, the topic that I had was an update on the economic and housing market in Virginia, as well as how it relates to broadband. And how does it relate to broadband? Uh, so we were we were talking about a lot of the population changes that have happened in, um, in Virginia and um, how a lot of that population change in the rural areas of Virginia is especially attributed to broadband. Uh, it's the broadband access that is really kind of bridging the gap uh, right now. Uh, there is a, there is this prevalence of work from home and, and hybrid work arrangements. So it is so broadband access has become more of a utility rather than a luxury. And just to be able to um, 
get that broadband access to rural areas has been such an important feat um, by a lot of the people who who I met today. So it, it was really cool to see them in person. And so I heard um, before you got up, I heard uh, Evan Feynman, who, of course, used to be in Virginia, but is now the director of broadband equity access and deployment program for the U.S. Department of Commerce. That's a big, big thing to say. Um, He was talking about how in five years, the goal is that every house in the United States will have broadband access. Once we've achieved every community having broadband access and people can work from everywhere, what's going to happen then? Like what kind of shifts are we going to see over time? Right. So again, like the shift from um, the city centers to rural areas is already happening. It's kind of like we are in the middle of this in this migration, if if you can put it mm-hmm, that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but once that once like it's a level playing field, then it's the same um, the same uh, uh, the same criteria as before. What what states offer better um, tax rates? Where do where are the better school systems? You know, then it's it's just then it's like oh we're back to the the other basic criteria that everyone's looking for when they're looking to buy a house. Yeah, and what does this mean for smaller rural communities that say, hey, now we can kind of compete with the big cities for some of their 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 people, right? Um, but we can't offer, you know, we're not a city. We can't offer high rises and density of shopping and all that. So how do Correct. how do they find their niche in there? Do you enjoy the high-rise living? Or do you enjoy just being in like more close to nature in the rural areas or just having more space to yourself? Um, and those things, again, are, are so much in flux that we are yet to see where that will be. But again, the niche for a rural market, once the uh, playing field is pretty even, is that it's, it's, it's landscape. It's the, the community feeling. It's the... Um, more open spaces. That's that's still kind of going to be the the driving factor for the rural communities. I mean, it's always shocking to see the numbers, uh, the the rise in home prices, mm-hmm. coupled with the rise in interest rates, and just the difference between what a monthly payment looks like for a thirty year mortgage right now than it was just a couple years ago. Yes. How do you see broadband access in rural communities affecting that? Are the are they sort of two different things, or do they they work together? I'm going to say it's it's kind of like the rural communities have an advantage right yeah. now at least at least for the near future because they are giving you that bigger space they are giving you those those bigger houses um uh for much cheaper and maybe they have more stock right now too they do yeah. they do and uh, that's that's the one of the other things i mentioned was um Maybe there are these communities where there's a lot of housing stock, but they don't have broadband access. So people are not going to choose to move there unless they really, really like the place. Uh, so that's that's going to be something that will work in their favor once there is broadband access in those communities. So you were talking about the empty uh, downtown spaces. I Correct. mean, not completely vacant, but Correct. I think the number you had up on the screen was close to 50 percent mm-hmm. down from where it was right. sort of pre-pandemic. Right. I have a theory that people are going to get burned out of working at home. And are going to crave that third location they mm-hmm. can go to that isn't an office space and isn't home. Yeah, maybe. Um, th- it, it's it's funny you bring that up because I was having a conversation with my chief economist, with our chief economist yesterday. And it was um, this trend that they have been observing about, yes, people want to work from home. They don't want to go to the office to mm-hmm. work uh, every day, but they still want to go to offsites. Mm-hmm. They still want to go to a conference in another state. They still want to go meet their clients who live or who who are located somewhere away from where they live. So hotel occupancy rates are going oh, up. Oh, right. So right. so so there's always like 
a different situation that's kind of yeah. benefiting. Well, thanks a lot for your time. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Matt Ogburn. I'm the uh, Director of Government Relations for uh, Virginia for Verizon. Um, and I kind of have three hats that I wear for the company. I uh, do state government affairs, local government affairs, and also execute our philanthropic work and community engagement work in Virginia. Um, today, our panel was about a piece of legislation that a huge coalition of um, lobbyists and interest groups um, that work with the General Assembly uh, sought to pass this year related to uh, railroads for decades and decades now. Um, railroads have been an impediment to building out uh, not just fiber, but other services in Virginia too. On top of that, the, the, the fees and the permits, the permits also greatly delayed a number of projects throughout Virginia. Like I said, this issue has been ongoing for, for decades, but and has there's been bills in the past. It's been studied in the past, um, but what really made this year different was the fact that broadband is such a hot topic issue. Uh, Verizon was just awarded um, two grants through the VADI process to work with Greensville County and Caroline County, and we also have a, a, a big partnership with Bedford County as well. So Verizon's committed to building out services in rural Virginia, and what we, uh, you know, really saw was the fact that you know us and others, the, the, like I said, the coalition was huge, co-ops, other cable companies, uh, Dominion Power. Um, we really all came together and we have this shared issue of dealing with the railroads and really the, the that was the genesis of the bill and what the bill sought to do was cap the fees so they couldn't charge us exorbitant rates and set strict timelines on when they were have to get back to us on their on the permits that we submit to cross the railroads and why that's such impo- such an important issue especially with body grants is so on the fee side this is public money right this is it's federal money and state money. It's taxpayers' money that's going into building out um, rural broadband. And we have a, a large responsibility as internet service providers working with the counties to be good stewards of that money. And we have a responsibility to build out these projects as efficiently as, a po- as possible. And that's hard to do sometimes when we're getting charged ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for one single crossing, um, and you know we only get a certain amount of money from the grant, and um, you know it, it, it. It's just such a shame to to know that some of that money, those public dollars, was going back to the railroads to, to cross uh, cross the tracks rather than going to putting in the infrastructure in the ground. Um, to you know, connecting people to broadband, and th- the other key factor is the timeline. When we execute a VADI grant, we have 18 months to complete that project. Um, as soon as the, the day we sign our contract with the county, we have 18 months to complete it. And we have examples from multiple members of the coalition, particularly the co-ops, where they were being delayed six months. Um, for a single permit to cross a railroad. When you have 18 months to build out your whole project, even just a couple of weeks, we're working on such strict timelines. With some of these projects, we're building out hundreds of miles, connecting thousands of homes. And to do that in an 18-month time period, 
without delay it is already a, a tough thing to do. Um, and with any type of delay can really, uh, you know, pun intended, derail the project. And thankfully, we were, we were successful. So that, um, that bill signed into law goes into effect on July 1. And uh, as our VADI projects continue, we will have a framework in place in the code to, um, to regulate how this process works when, when dealing with railroads. So if another state were to try and replicate kind of what you've created here in Virginia, what would your biggest piece of advice be for them? Build a coalition. Um, Start working on it early. You know, our our bill, I think, um, has already been used as a a model in multiple other states. I know I've been talking to, to my counterparts at Verizon and other states um, because, you know, we're kind of ahead of the game in, in Virginia with Vadi. Vadi's been around a while, right? We, when the federal money came down, it kind of just, you know, poured fuel on a, on a process that it was already working so well to, to build out broadband in, in rural Virginia where other states didn't have that process. And so they're now kind of going through setting up a Vadi-esque program. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Good afternoon. My name is Cindy Church. I am the Continuing Education Consultant as well as the State E-Rate Coordinator for the Library of Virginia. So my main role in this conference is discussing the importance of libraries in the broadband conversation. And I'm catching you actually the day before you're going to give your speech. So if you don't mind me asking, um, can you give me a little preview of what what you're going to be covering and and what message you're trying to get across to the folks here? Absolutely. Um, So the importance of digital literacy in libraries and E-rates. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, letting letting the group know how libraries are funded and supported via E-rate as well as through the Emergency Connectivity Fund. And we're going to talk about the importance of libraries as partnerships in the um, ACP process, making sure that li- that when they're trying to get the word out about the affordable connectivity program, they should be coming to the public libraries because that's where patrons are coming to use the computers because either they don't have Internet or they don't have very strong Internet. So why not put the ACP brochures at the public libraries? And also, as the people here are looking for opportunities to get the word out or to do things you know why reinvent the wheel we're already trusted partners in terms of a place to go to that's free a place to you know people come to the library for advice so let's 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 you know make sure the library is at the foundation of any of these these discussions i'm old enough to know that the first place you could go check your email was the library that's where you went you didn't have the option to do it at home and for a lot of people that's still the case absolutely absolutely no i just you know I think it's not, yes, there are there's certainly people like you who remember those kind of things, but there are those that go, well, why do I need the library when I have Google? Why do I need the library when, surely you don't need to pay people to work in the library when there's volunteers, all they're doing is shelving books. So <laughs> so just, um, you know, reaffirming the libraries as a sense of place, not, we're not, <sighs> books are our brand, but not our business, was someone told me once, but I thought that was a really great analogy for libraries because we have been really um from you know getting the word out about the change in the um the snap benefits when that went electronic we were warned we were given that opportunity to 
I'm also trained to train library staff on how to administer Narcan. Oh, wow. Because so unfortunately, yeah. or fortunately, just two blocks from where you work, there was, there's not one, but two overdoses. Yes. Yeah. That, you know, and, and they're, you know, I'm not going to off that too much, but, you know, where are people going? Again, it's a public building for good, but it's also a public building for, unfortunately, those kind of things. So I, I, I can train, I have the staff, I've had the kits except for the Narcan, and I'll go and train staff on how to, you know, administer and what to recognize in sense of an overdose. So, so libraries are very, you know, integral, um, you know, community partners in many things. And libraries are, at the state library, we've got a new um, vehicle called LVA on the go, and we're going to festivals and other public libraries because we are celebrating our 200th anniversary this year. So I would encourage you to stop by and check out our exhibits. So. All right, well, thanks so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you for being here. Thank yeah. you. Take care. I'm Crystal Duke. I'm a grants and funding manager with Breezeline. And really, my job is to partner with localities to extend broadband to any unserved or underserved locations that they have. Uh, recently, Breezeline did complete over a 150-mile fiber broadband project. Uh, we actually started the planning phase at the height of the COVID pandemic. So it started planning about March of 2020. So we were meeting with the four localities that we partnered with, which was Matthews County, Middlesex, Caroline, and Lancaster County. Mm -hmm. So we started that planning phase. The COVID pandemic happened. So a lot of those in-person meetings turned to virtual. Um, so we just completed that project actually March of this year. So you think about when that planning phase started in March 2020, it's really just trying to figure out, you know, where are those unserved and underserved locations that we need to focus on, and then um, really gathering all the information we need as far as cost estimates and what it will cost to reach those locations, and how much funding we want to pursue, how much Breezeline can contribute, and then the localities, of course, contributed funding to it as well. So really just creating that partnership to pursue the VADI grant program. So, you know, from starting from March 2020 planning phase, we submitted that application in August of that year. So it's not much time to really, you know, gather all the data you really need. And then finally being awarded in March of the following year, 2021. And then, of course, you have to get under contract mm -hmm. execution before you can really get rolling. And now completing in March of 2023 which is basically an 18-month timeline that we had once we submitted that contract. So, you know, it was over 1,400 passings that never had internet available to them before. Mm. And just hearing all the stories over that time from our partners on a locality level, you know, they're getting hugs at their board of supervisor meetings because it's really been life-changing to open job opportunities for people their children being able to, you know, really catch up on what they feel behind as far as the literacy effort. And just it's you just hear a lot of passion from everyone. And what's what's kind of one of the big lessons learned that you would want to impart to maybe the localities that haven't done this yet or that aren't aren't participating that that you, you know, here. Here's the one or two things you really need to be thinking about. So one thing is just identifying who does not have access to the internet, whether they don't have it at all and they're unserved or they're lacking that 25 over 3 to 100 over 20 and it's underserved. 
So really getting out in your communities and doing those surveys and trying to find out who are they. Now, of course, you know, the state of Virginia has done a great job to challenge the FCC mapping, which will help determine how, you know, bead funding will be allocated and things like that. But just really getting out in your community to make sure people are raising their hand if they do not have the Internet. And then another is just communication. Communication is critical to your community. And then also if you are partnering with the ISP, we always had a really good line of communication with our four localities during the project. So they could either call, text, email. I mean, if they, even if they wanted to drive to my house, I think they would because I'm, I live in the localities that we partner with. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot for being part of Broadband Together and thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of the VML Voice. Thanks again to my co-host and colleague, Joseph Bulova, for helping with some of these interviews. And thanks again to our sponsors, Virginia Housing, Dominion Energy, and GovDeals. We'll be back soon enough with more stories about the people and ideas that make the Commonwealth work for everyone. Until then, may the broadband be with you. And here's this episode's VML Voice of Reason. Uh, when the night is darkest, right, you know, the sun is, you know, right around the corner.